This episode brought to you by Team Stripes Academy. Learn from some of the top officials in the world. Start today at TeamStripesAcademy.com. You're listening to the Team Stripes Podcast, the podcast for hockey referees. Each show, we discuss the world of officiating and find out that not everything is in black and white. Here's your host, Brandon Bourgeois. We are very lucky this week to have perhaps one of the most accomplished uh, linesmen in NHL history, I would say. He has worked a grand total of 2,470 games in both the World Hockey Association and the National Hockey League, including 134 playoff games, five Stanley Cup finals, the 1996 World Cup of Hockey, and one NHL All-Star game. He is also one of only two officials to have ever worked the finals in both the WHA and the NHL. So uh, we want to introduce to the podcast Mr. Wayne Bonney. Wayne, welcome. Thank you very much, Brandon. Pleased, pleased to be on. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there have heard your name before. They 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 know uh, they know about your career, but bringing it back, I'm wondering if you could talk about just how you got involved with officiating in the first place, and you know what uh, your introduction was to the world of refereeing. Well, back in I used to, I was born and raised in Ottawa, so in 1970, 69, 70, I started refereeing in the Pian Hockey Association, and uh, I did a lot of refereeing there, and I wanted to get better and so I went to a few camps here and there. And then the one year, uh, 1972, the world hockey started. And there was a, a camp over in uh, Halliburton. And I went to it. And I wanted to, I just wanted to get better because they had the OHL, the Ottawa 67s in the in the league at the time. And I wanted to work that big. But at the time, I wasn't, they didn't think I was good enough to work. So I went to uh, this clinic or this uh, referee camp and Vern Buffy, who was the referee in chief of the, of the world hockey at the time, he just got hired. He saw me and two other guys and they hired me to work in the, in the world hockey association. So what I did is we moved, uh, I moved down to Greensboro, North Carolina for the first year. And then after that, I moved up and I was full time into the national into the world hockey association. But uh, that's how I started. So when you started out, were you a guy that uh, took to officiating pretty quickly, or was it something that was more of a progression for you? I I, it, I adapted to it pretty quickly. I was I was uh, I was very lucky. I was a very good skater, and uh, any 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 young official, anybody that's looking for a good official, is that when they when they tell you something, when a supervisor comes in the room and he says, Wayne, uh, I want you to do this and do this, and you adjust to it and try to get better. Uh, that's a good sign of an official where you don't have to keep telling them two times, three times, repeating yourself all the times. So if you just tell an official once, and if it, you get a top quality official, like you get the Ray Campanellos and the Bill McCurries and, and all the other great officials that have been in the National Hockey League, they're there because when they're told something once, they pick it up and they go with it. So uh, I was gifted on that part and other things, and same with the other great referees and the, and the linesmen in the National Hockey League. So you, so you make the WHA. What's running through your mind? You, your first game on the ice. You're a young guy. Is there any special memories from that first game? I, I, well, I had, you know, the first year in uh, 72, I was in, they sent me to Greensboro, North Carolina, and it was called the Southern Hockey League. So we worked down there for the, you know, they'd never seen me work. So they let me work in the Southern Hockey League for like 30 or 40 games. And then around Christmas time, they brought me up into the world hockey. And it happens to be my very, one of my very first games of 
I'm, uh, I got Bobby Hall and Gordy Howe. They're in a face-off in the neutral zone, and I'm in awe. You know, 18 years old, I said, two of the best hockey players in the world. Well, I drop the puck, and Gordy Howe gets the puck, goes across the blue line. I miss the offside. It's offside for at least two feet. And Gordy goes in, and he scores. Well, needless to say, Bobby Hall gave me his two cents, what he thought about me. And from that day on, I realized that I can't be in awe of every hockey player or every superstar. I got to treat them all the same and just do my job. And it was, a, unfortunately, it was the very first game I ever had in the world hockey, but it was a good learning experience that you don't be in awe, you just do your job. And I'm assuming after that uh, first missed offside call, things went up from there in your career. Uh, thankfully, yes, it did. Yes, it did. I was very lucky. Yeah. And you didn't keep the puck from that uh, that first game, did you? Uh, you know what? I, I've I, I've I, I've collected a lot of pucks over the years. Uh, this, you know, the games. You know, when we all as officials, we go go to a city, you pick up a puck and collect it. I have my uh, matter of fact, I have my first World Hockey puck, my first NHL puck, and I got my first Southern Hockey League puck. So I have them on little plaques and the dates and who I work with. So I've collected those for years back in the seventies. So. Uh, I've been collecting them a long time. And uh, now you you mentioned that uh, that story. That's that's a that's a great story. And I'm sure that's a memory that uh, that stuck with you pretty close. But in all seriousness, you've had a, a one of you know probably the most storied careers an NHL lines could hope for. Working, you know, the amount of games you did and working the Stanley Cup Finals. But I mean, when you started in the WHA, can you talk about that transition of making the jump from the WHA to the NHL? Was it a big jump for you? Uh, what what were the differences uh, working the two leagues? Well, the difference, well, they, obviously the National League was a little more established. And the, the, the quality you play, I, I, in the last year, 1979, the Winnipeg Jets, who won the AFCO Cup and everything else, they were just as good as any NHL team in the National Hockey League. And Edmonton Oilers were the same thing. So the last, last two years, the quality of the six teams or four teams that went and jumped to the NHL, they were the same quality as the and matter matter of fact, some of them were even better than the teams that were already in the NHL. So the speed and everything else was the same. It's just uh, adapting to different things, you know, the different rules. So they had a few different rules and things like that. But overall, it was uh, I'd say in '78, '79 in the world hockey, their caliber of hockey was just as good. I mean, obviously, you got the great teams like the Montreal Canadiens and a few other teams, Edmonton. I mean. Teams that were all always in the NHL and head of head of head of their game was really good, but the uh, the last couple of years, uh, the last four or five teams that went into the the world hockey uh, from the world hockey to the National League were just as good as the NHL teams. So it was it was it was uh, the speed and everything else was just about the same. And I'm curious from like the from the referee perspective, because I'm assuming you know in the WHA you probably had a very close uh, group of of you know referees that worked those games. I mean. When you made that jump to the NHL, uh, what was the dynamic there between the referees coming from the WHA and the NHL guys? Was there any animosity there? Was it was it a tight knit group? I mean, what's what was sort of the dynamic at play? Well, when we when the, when we were hearing the last year when they were talking about the teams uh, the leagues merging, we heard rumors, and obviously it was all rumors that the officials in the NHL don't. I mean, I think there was six of us that came over to the National Hockey League. And they weren't going to treat us well or anything else. And the, but when we got there, they treated us just as well as anybody else. They they accepted us and say, "Good luck. We wish you all the best." They helped us. So there was no um, nobody was mad at us or anything like that. They were they were they all treated us well. They knew it was part of the business and they accepted us. 
And was it uh, tough? I mean, did you have, was building all these new relationships, did it take you a while to sort of gain that comfort level uh, working in that league? Oh, without a doubt. Uh, without a doubt. I mean, uh, I found, okay, I've been in the, I was in the world hockey for seven years before I went to the National League, so I had a fair amount of experience. But one of the things I found in the National Hockey League, my, I, my, my very first year or first 15 years, I always, I lived in Ottawa for a little while, and then the year after, I moved to Montreal. So I lived in Montreal for my first, my first three years as an official. Every time I had a call on my blue line, everybody on the Montreal Canadiens would yell offside. They tried to intimidate you. And by the third year, and this is all the teams in the league with different officials, they try to intimidate you. And after about the third year, the players accept you. And all of a sudden they stop talking to you. I mean, they don't, they don't yell, they don't question you. And that's how you get your acceptance. So it was, it was kind of unique. Uh, I never had that. I mean, in the world hockey, you, you build up your respect and, uh, and by the games, your work and everything else. And obviously everybody was having fun in the world hockey, but in the national league, it was just a little step higher. And you, it was funny how they treated you, but once you were in there and you've, they saw that you were there for three years and game on, they let you go and you do, they know why you're here. You're one of the best. So they let you, they don't bother you anymore. And, uh, you know, when I was, I was preparing for this podcast, I was looking at some of the stories about you. And, and certainly there's, there's a couple of funny ones that come to mind. And uh, there was one that happened on November 3rd, 1990. I'm not sure if you can recall that or not, but uh, I'm wondering if you could tell the listeners what happened on, uh, on that date. Uh, yes, that was, that's not a hard one to, not to forget. It's, uh, I'm doing a game in Philadelphia in an afternoon game. And, um, and after the, it's one o'clock, so the game starts at one. So after the first period, we're in between the first and second period. A police officer comes in or someone from the off-ice official says, Wayne Bonney. And I said, yes, sir. He's your, you are going to Boston after the game. I said, no, I'm not. I'm going home to Montreal. He's no, your assignments have been changed. Jerry Goche in Montreal or in Boston has been sick and he can't work tonight. So you have to go to Boston tonight. And I said, what time is the game at? And they said seven o'clock. So we obviously finished the second and third period. We were finished by around four, four thirty. The Philadelphia Flyers had a police officer, I mean, a police escort. They got me in a cop car and they took me to the airport, sirens and everything else. And I got on the plane. I landed in, uh, in Boston. Boston had arranged for a police officer to pick me up and they took me to the game. And then when I got to the game, all I did was talk to the trainer and said, can I get some new underwear? And they, so they gave me new underwear, did the game. Everything went well, no problem. Now, the next morning, I had a 7 o'clock flight to go home to Montreal. But I didn't think much of this. So after the game, obviously, I went, home, uh, went out and had a couple of drinks. Then I went to bed around, I guess, 1 o'clock in the morning. I didn't get up till 1 o'clock the next day because it felt like a train run me over. I didn't, I didn't think it was that hard of a deal doing two games. But when I woke up the next day, I couldn't move. I missed my flight. I, I, it, was just, it was just terrible. It felt like I got run over. That's how tough it was. And have had you have you ever heard of something like that happening before in the NHL? Was that was that a first time uh, in your in your memory? Uh, I, as far as I know, I'm, and you know, I, if you can find it, I, as far as I know, I'm the only official that has ever done that. Now I don't know if you've had. I know if some guys have gone from uh, maybe doing an American uh, National League game and then they have to do an afternoon or a night game. All of a sudden, their emergency someone that might be working the American League goes to the American League. Maybe that's happened. I haven't got a clue. But I'm pretty sure I'm the only official that's ever done that. 
certainly one of the things that that's you know you kind of ushered in or you are you are a part of I guess is is the transition from when referees were wearing helmets or when they were not wearing helmets to when they started wearing helmets. And I know you were involved with that. I'm wondering if you could provide the listeners a little bit of insight into how that transition happened and maybe some personal stories that you have about that. Well, in um, 1984, um, Andy Van Helman, myself, Ron Asseltine, and Mark Perry, we uh, were in an association meeting, and it was brought up, anybody going to wear helmets? And most of the officials says, I'm not. So, and, uh, and, and the league didn't want, or shouldn't say our league didn't want, our boss didn't care for us, not wear, didn't care for us to wear helmets. That's at the time, that was the thing. So we took four helmets, uh, four of us took helmets and we worked games and everything else during the year and, uh, did our thing. And people don't realize that when, when the league doesn't want you to do something, they can come back at you at a certain, and, and, and get back at you if they don't want you to do it. And the year before I started wearing helmets, I went to the third round and I, I was hoping to go to the third round or to the finals that year in 84. But unfortunately I got a phone call from my boss who was John McCauley at the time. He says, after the first round, he says, you're not going to the second round. And he says, well, cause you're not good enough. It was an unwritten rule. I knew that he couldn't tell me, but he was just proving a point to me that I, you don't want to step out of, uh, you want to, better follow the NHL rules because if you don't things are going to happen you're not going to get playoffs you're not going to do this so unfortunately he was proving a point to me that I if you want to wear a helmet you might not do as many playoff games as you hoped and by doing that that year uh, I, I if I would have went to the finals that would have been 8,000 more around so I would have made another $24,000 and unfortunately that helmet cost me $24,000 that year. <laughs> but it's one of the, it's one of, it's one of those things. It's expensive growing pains. And now, and the same thing, I started wearing a visor and my boss didn't care for it either. And, and it's a growing pains. And now it's mandatory that everybody has to wear a helmet and everybody has to wear a visor, which is the best thing that ever happened. But it, when you're growing and going through all those things, uh, the, you, you have a lot of battles and things happen. And, some some people pay prices, and the four or five guys that started working, uh, the four or five guys that started wearing helmets paid the price at the beginning. The only guy that really didn't pay the price at the beginning was Andy Van Helm because he was working the finals every year. Mm-hmm. Everybody else, they could they could replace me, Asseltine, Perry, they could replace us and put somebody else in our plot. But Andy Van Helm was one of the best referees at the time, so they weren't going to change him at all. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners at home are kind of wondering, what, what, what's the big deal behind wearing a helmet? I mean, what was the thinking from the NHL uh, brass? Was it that it wasn't part of the style for a referee? Was it that it impacted your calls? I mean, what was the line of thinking there? Well, it's more of uh, acceptance. Uh, what it was is that players didn't wear helmets either. I mean, you look back, I think Red Berenson was one of the players in St. Louis. Uh, he wore one for, and a lot of players didn't wear helmets because they didn't, it was, it, I don't know if it was the in thing at the time. And I remember when they, when the Europeans came over and they started wearing visors, everybody thought they differently of the players. They say, you're really not tough, but you know what? They were ahead of the people that were in the Canadians, Americans. They, uh, they were protecting themselves. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you a story, a little story about my daughter. She was seven years old. So she's 40 years old now. So she's it's 33 years ago. I'm, I'm looking at a helmet and, you know, Joffa helmet like Wayne Gretzky wears. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a shell. And then there's another Joffa helmet. It's a little more protection. And then there was one that 
I think all Samuels and a uh, Philadelphia war years ago, and it went down, covered the years and everything else. So I'm sitting in front of my daughter and I have the three helmets. And I said, now I obviously uh, 38 years old thinking I'm, I want to see what I, I'm more worried about my appearance than I am what I look like, uh, what I, what my helmet should be. So after about five minutes of looking at the helmets, my daughter says to me, says the helmet that goes down and covers your ears, that protects you the most. That's the best helmet you should wear. And I realized that a seven-year-old told me, wake up, protect yourself, and don't worry what you look like. So it was, it's, it's things that have gone past in the past in the history of young officials. And even when young officials starting in their leagues, they do something out of the ordinary and somebody in management doesn't like it. So they get their fingers wrapped and then they, and they don't go as far as they should go because they, because they buck the system. That's what it is. Buck the system mm-hmm. is something different. But now, now, like I said, the players and the, and the officials all wear helmets and visors. So it's a common thing. So nobody says anything. Well, I mean, certainly your daughter sounds like a pretty smart, uh, smart kid. And obviously that, uh, that, uh, that helmet, uh, I guess, uh, issue didn't hold you back because like I said, you made it to five Stanley cup finals. I mean, I'm sure a lot of kids at home, you know, they grew up wishing they could be in the Stanley Cup and play for the Stanley Cup. But there's also a lot of referees out there that can only dream of refereeing in the Stanley Cup final. I mean, could you kind of give the listeners a little bit of perspective? I mean, what was it like for you working that first Stanley Cup final, like going to the rink and getting on the ice, you know, there for the national anthem? I mean, what what was it like for you? Well, it was. Uh, I think my first finals was uh, Pittsburgh and uh, Minnesota. And I'm doing my game, first game in Minnesota at the time. You're standing at the national anthem. I mean, during the day you get there. I mean, it's it's a whole it's a whole different uh, level of hockey you play during the season. And then when you get to the finals, you got everybody from who's anybody in sports that deals with hockey is there. Uh, reporters, everybody, TV, everything. So you're watching your P's and Q's. First of all, you're not used to doing that. So you watch you walk through the lobbies. You kind of watch. You're always dressed up properly. Where maybe in the day, in in a regular hockey game you'd be in your sweats. Well, today you're not walking in your sweats. You're walking in your uh, nice shirt and tie, and you're trying to be professional. And you don't want anybody to give you anything. You're. I mean, you can't sleep. You're so excited to do your first game. You just don't know. You don't know what to expect, and and you just want the game to get started. So that's probably the most exciting. Once you get going, you get. Once the whistle blows, you're back on the ice, and that's where you're familiar and you do your thing, and and you're 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 comfortable. Nobody's nobody can tell you what to do because you know what you're doing. So it's the it's the beginning of when you get the good news, they phone you and you you're all excited, and you and then you and then you get to the city, and then you're then you're all excited because you you can't nap in the afternoon, you can't do this because things you aren't used to anything, and then once you get your game under your belt, then you every game just gets easier and easier. Uh, don't get me wrong. Every game in the National Hockey League is tough in the finals. It's unbelievable how tough it is. So much pressure on you. You can't make mistakes. So, and you put it on yourself because you don't want to be the one official or one person to make a mistake to cost anybody a goal or a game. So uh, there's a lot of pressure on in, in bringing the finals. And would you say that it's a tougher game to call when it gets to that stage? Or what's what's sort of, you know, the perspective from, from refereeing those kind of games? I, no, it's, it's, it's not. You know what? The players don't say anything to you. They just do their job because they know they're, they're here maybe once. They may never get there again. Same with the official. You might you might get be lucky enough to be there this year and then never never go back to the finals again. So everybody does their job. 
it's uh, it's just like I said, it's, you're under a microscope, and if you make a bad pass or as a player, or make a bad play or a call as a referee or a linesman, it's 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 ten times as much than it was in a regular season game. Mm-hmm. So it's more, it's just more pressure not to make a mistake because as you know, you watch an NHL finals, they got replays on everything. So it's tough. And I mean, looking back at, at especially your first Stanley cup final, I mean, what do you think it was that sort of gave you that success? I mean, was it experience? Was it, you just had a great playoffs? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there that are wondering, Hey, even if they want to work even the novice finals for their local league, I mean, what was it that really set you apart? You know, especially that first Stanley Cup final to to really get to reach that that stage. You know what? It, you got to be lucky, and let's face it, everybody's got to be lucky to be in any certain in in hockey as a referee, as an official. You have to be in the right spot at the right time, and be fortunate enough not to not to make many mistakes. And I know one year um, I, I'm working with a fellow official, Kevin Collins. He'd worked a couple finals before that, but we're in the semifinals, and there was an offside pass. He unfortunately missed, and they scored on the goal. Well, he didn't go. He was expected to go to the finals, but he didn't. But that was an opening for some other official and myself, and I was lucky enough to go. And it just happens to be that because of somebody's unfortunate mistake, it benefited me. Mm-hmm. And then when I got there, it's the same thing. I can't make a mistake because if you make a mistake, someone's there to replace you. So you put a lot of pressure on yourself. And then, and 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 also, in um, when you work the finals, a lot of hockey players watch the games, and officials watch the games. And then the following year, when it starts, everybody has a rapport or has a different respect for you because you've been fortunate enough to be picked to do one of the best things in the world, uh, work the finals. And so everybody believes you're an elite group. And there's, and I can't tell you how many officials have worked the finals. I mean, there's not many. And I mean, there's a lot of guys that work in this league there's probably a thousand officials i know and i could probably pick 30 guys maybe 40 at the most work the finals and the rest of the guys don't so it's an elite bunch of guys when you're working those games and i want to jump to a couple other questions but i mean you know do you get a, a second when you're in those games to sit back and say hey geez like this is i'm a part of history now i'm working the stanley cup final people are going to remember these games i mean can you get a second to sit back and really kind of absorb that that sense of hockey history i guess not you know what you don't even think of that you don't even think of you're in a lucky enough to be in that part of history or certain things happen to you you don't think i mean i've some of these questions you brought up i haven't even thought of and i've been retired for 15 years and 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 it's it's nice to talk about them because they were part of my life at the time a big part of my life and now i'm um it's not part of hockey's i mean i still like watching hockey but i'm not involved a lot in refereeing down here in arizona Mm-hmm. But it's 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 different. It's uh, but like you said, it's just at the moment you don't really think I worked. I mean, I was lucky enough to. I'm changing subject here. I was lucky enough to work the third longest game in history. I think we went seven period or six periods overtime in Pittsburgh, and and those kind of games you're going, you're tired. Yes, you're tired. The players are tired. But after you get in the third or fourth period, you say, I don't want to make a mistake. That's all you're concerned about. Just make sure it's a clean goal. No, no question. Nobody's no, not a questionable goal. So when it happens, that's that's your mindset at the time. But at the time, the first three or four or five periods, you're saying good hockey. 
And then around the sixth and seventh period, you're saying, oh boy, just don't make a mistake. That's all you're hoping for. Uh, like what goes through your head as you're going on the ice for that fifth, sixth period? I mean, do you have any legs left at that point? I mean, what are you guys saying in between periods? Oh, you just, the same thing. You just, I mean, you're, you're really, you, when you're into that period, four or five periods, you're just sitting and you just, they're bringing in oranges and they're bringing in soft, not soft drinks, but uh, Gatorade or whatever it is that you want to drink uh, just to keep your energy up. And the players are just like we are. They're all tired and exhausted and they don't want to make a mistake. And they're just, they're just mentally, it's tough to explain. You just mentally prepare yourself. You say, I got to go out and work it. That's part of the thing. And if you do it the fifth period, you go to the sixth period and that's it. I'll, I'll, I'll add to this little story that I'm talking about the game. My wife traveled in uh, over to Hong Kong for business in that year that I did the finals. When she took off, she saw she saw me working the game. She's always oh, on the game. When I landed, when she landed in, in the United States, the game was still going on. That's how long the game went. Wow. And she says, I, I saw you. I dropped the puck and I saw you at the end of the game. So that's how long the game went, like eight or nine hours. Jeez. No, that's uh, that's that's, that's yeah. pretty, uh, pretty remarkable. Yeah, you do what you have to do. It's just it's it's a fun experience. You look back at it and you say, "Yeah, it's part of history." The three third longest hockey game in the world. I mean, the National Hockey League. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't imagine what the longest hockey game was. Uh, it was it was tiring. Um, and before I jump, yeah. I want to talk about your your life as I know you had a a, a great tenure working, uh, you know, helping referees to develop. And even now, I know you you know you uh, you help referees develop, but. I mean, you, you kind of touched on uh, that missed offside call in the playoffs when, you know, uh, Collins missed, missed the offside. I mean, obviously today it's a different league where that might not happen because of the offside review. I mean, do you like that that adjustment the league's made where they have all these reviews now? You know what? You're, they're taking the human element of the game now, but the game is so much faster and there's so much money involved in it. You'd hate to see a team lose a playoff spot because of a missed call that should have been called. And then the, I mean, I, I, I know you don't blame these. You can't blame the officials. I mean, the players get to the finals or whatever the level they go to or uh, first round, second round or third round, it's up to them. But I mean, people are, will say, well, you know what? You're, you're talking about one call. If the players can uh, weren't good enough for that one call, they really didn't really deserve to be in the finals or wherever they're going to go. But I believe replay is good for just to make sure it's right. Everybody wants it right. I mean, if you go to a game or I go to a game, you want the call to be right. And if 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 they, the team loses on the right call, fine. But it's but when it when you when we didn't have it, well, I'll give you an example. When we were in the, in the early years before they had the replay for goals, you know how they replay all the goals. Mm-hmm. We would go and they'd argue with us. The players would argue with us. We'd go to the penalty box. We'd talk what we thought. We'd talk to the gold judges and everything else. And then we'd come up with our, our, our decision. And then we go tell the coaches. The coaches yell and scream. Now what the replay has done, after every goal, they just say, we're going up to the replay. The replay comes back and says, goals. not one player, not one coach. Nobody says a word. They just stop and no complaining, no bitching. So that's the biggest thing that I've seen on a replay Players just say, okay, replay said it. We don't argue with it anymore. So that's a big thing that's changed since when I was there and the players and the, and the ruling now. Is it good for the game? I mean, I think the National League's done a good job. They, I mean, they try to get replays back and answers back within 30 or 40 seconds, and that, I think they've done a pretty good job. 
and you don't want it to go too long because people lose interest. But uh, I think the National League's done a pretty good job in replays and things like that. And i got to ask you a quick question here. I mean, we, we've had a, 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 quite a few listeners that have reached out to us and say, hey, geez, like how, how do these NHL guys deal with these controversial situations? I mean, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, uh, you know, these high-pressure situations, you know, potential goals, no goals. I mean, you know, let's say you, when you were refing, you kind of see this controversial play or, you know, there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, players arguing about a certain outcome. I mean, what's running through your head at the time? How do you stay calm? I mean, what's, what's sort of the thought process for you in, in those situations? Well, as an official, we all go out there. We try. I mean, we try to call a perfect game. That'll never happen. You don't. You don't never call a perfect game. I've done in games where uh, I've I've missed an offside uh, in Toronto. Rick Vive. We're going back in the 70s, 80s. Rick Vive goes in and scored his 50th goal. It was an offside of my call. Did I want to miss that? No. I heard about it, but it's not because I wanted to miss it. It's just, and you have to be uh, tough enough and say, okay, that call's over. I'm sorry. I made the mistake. I don't want to do it. I've been in games where I thought a player hit a guy with another stick and I called a major in a game and it was his own player that hit him. And after seeing the replay, I was wrong. But we as officials don't go on the ice to make mistakes. And when, when I make a call, I think I'm 100% right or I wouldn't make it. So uh, so my mind thought is I try to do my best. If I make a mistake, heaven forbid, but I'll be the first to admit that I made a mistake after I see the replay. But um, I, I've been very fortunate where, you know, I haven't, I didn't make a lot of mistakes. You know, the, you know, maybe I make one mistake or two mistakes in a year after doing 80 or 90 games. That's not bad. But if you make a little more than that, you're really in trouble. So, um, and that's, that's what I think with the old, old school, like you go Ray Scampanello, the Kevin Collins, the Ron Asseltine, all the old school we didn't seem to make that many mistakes, but we didn't have TV and replays all the time either. So maybe we made just as many mistakes, but we didn't think we did as these young officials that are very good in the national league. Now they're just unbelievable skaters and they're, and they're good and they're good, uh, good officials. They know how to work, work ethic is good, but they're under, they're under everything. I mean, now that they have that blue line that, uh, I guess an eye on the, on the blue line, if it's offside or not, we never had that. I mean, they're under the gun all the time because the league pay big bucks, tel- television revenue, and it means a lot when you score a goal or you lose a game or, you know, uh, it's just things like that. It's just, it's tough. Uh, and kind of wrapping into sort of our final s- segment for the podcast, but I'd love to talk about your career. I mean, posts being on the ice. I mean, certainly I know that you've helped a, a ton of referees develop and move into the professional ranks uh, certainly your work off the ice. I know you have a group called the Clip Doctor that you're well known for. I mean, I'm wondering if you could talk about kind of what made you really pursue helping other referees develop and just kind of what made you, uh, you know, want to get into the development side of things as a referee. Well, in two, 2004, I had to retire. I had to get a new hip. So I was out. I was out. And there was a league down here in Phoenix. Well, in the headquarters were here. It was called the Central Hockey League. And Dwayne Lewis was was the commissioner at the time. And the referee in chief at the time was an ex-NHL guy, Leon Stickle, but he lived in Ontario. And he was kind of stepping out of it. He says he wanted to get out of it and stay home in, in Ontario. He didn't care to do the supervising in the Central Hockey League anymore. So they came to me and asked me if I wanted. And I said, I've never done anything like this before. I said, I'll give it my best offer. 
And when I went into the job, I had one attitude. I've had, I was lucky if I had, I've had some great bosses, Scotty Morrison, John McCauley, Brian Lewis. And I learned from them. And the biggest thing I learned from them is that some of them, if they didn't like you, whoever it was, they didn't like you, you didn't get on promoted to what you should be going to. So I went into the Central Hockey League attitude. If I know Brandon, I might not like Brandon, but he's the best official. I'm going to put Brandon on because he's the best official that I have. I want the best to represent me. So I went into that attitude when I went to the Central Hockey League, and I tried to find the best hockey uh, officials I can find. I went to the Quebec League, talked to Richard Trotche, asked him if he had anybody that was up and coming that might want to come to the Central League. I went to the Western League. I went to I went to the East Coast League. I went to the Ontario League. I went to everybody I could, and I explained that I want them to promote. I wasn't going to keep them there all the time. I'm going to just say, let them come to visit with me for three years, and then bring them back to your league, or they're going to go somewhere else. Well, I was lucky. I got John McIsaac. He went to the National Hockey League. He was with me for three years. Freddie Lechway, he's in the NHL. He was with me for three years. They just, it was just my goal, and my belief is that if I can get you in the Central Hockey League, my goal is to get you in the American League or the NHL. And if if you don't go, well, that's it's not because I didn't try. It's because you didn't have the ability or the boss up top, Steve Walkham now, maybe didn't like you. So that's that's how it all goes. And so that was my biggest thing. I, I wanted to prove the young officials, if you come down to the Central Hockey League, we're going to promote you the best you can. And if you have the ability, we'll get you moving on. And then the clip doctor thing I started a few years ago, whereas you as an official would send me a DVD or a clip of some game or a, a video of some game, and I watch the whole game, and I go through it, and I cut it up, and I do a voice voiceover, and then I send you all the back of the clips. So you're getting personally supervised by me, and I, all I do is look at you in the game. So that's how I started the clip doctor. And it's something for me. It kept me busy. That's what my big thing is. I wanted to keep busy. And I know you, you've had years of experience in developing officials, and certainly we could talk probably for hours if we wanted to about, you know, how to create a, you know, how to, how to improve refereeing and how to make a better official. But for our listeners out there, is there some basic fundamentals that you, you'd, you'd, you'd like to convey or certain things that, that, you, that you wish, uh, you know, referees out there that are trying to get to the NHL or trying to, to get to the American League to, that need to adopt in, in the way that they develop, I guess? Is there certain certain traits, certain things they should be working on? I mean, what, what do you, what would you tell these officials out there? Well, before I say anything like that, like I just read on Facebook, the three OHL officials just got hired by the NHL, but they're all ex players. And then I, on the Facebook that I was, there was all these comments from officials. That's not right. He did. They don't do their time. They didn't do this. They didn't do this. And what the National Hockey League is looking for, first of all, you got to skate. And 99% of the players that play the American League or ex-NHL players, they're pretty good skaters. They're probably the best skaters you can find. So for a young official, if you can't skate, if you can't, if you can't look at, uh, if you watch a hockey game and you say, I want to be like Bill McCurry, an ex-referee, and they say, well, if you can't skate as fast as him and you don't have the size of him, you're not going to work. So that's the thing that National Hockey League is looking for. Skaters. Their attitude is, I can teach. I can. I can teach you the rule book. I can help you with your common sense and, and interpretation of the rule, but I can't teach you how to skate. You got to be able to skate. So all these young officials out there, referees or linesmen, 
if you can't skate, don't even bother going applying to the highest level you can go to. You got to make sure you be able to skate, and you got to be, and you got to look at if you want to be in the NHL, you look at pick the top referee, and you look at the top linesman. You say, "Am I as good as them?" Obviously, at your young age, you're not. But if you want to be as good as them, you have to skate and do things as well as well as they do. So you have to be able to look ahead and be honest with yourself and say, yeah, I'm a good enough skater. I have the size. I can do that. Well, more power to you go. But if you don't, you got to be honest with yourself. And, and, and another thing too, is you got a boss. I mean, uh, I, Wayne Bonney could be the boss of the NHL and I might like you, but I might not like another guy. And then Steve Wacom, who's the boss now, he might not like me and like you. So it's personalities too. So, but First thing they're looking for, all the NHL, when they go out, they look for officials, if they can skate and how big they are, how their appearance is, how they handle themselves. That's what they're looking for because they can teach you everything else. That's great advice, Wayne. And uh, before we let you go, I'd love, uh, you mentioned that being, um, uh, I guess, considered the clip doctor. I mean, is there ways that referees out there that are looking for you can, can find you? Uh, can they find you on Facebook? I mean, where, where's the best place to find out more information? They can find, I mean, obviously you looked up my name and I don't know how you did it. You obviously know how to do this a little bit or looking up. I mean, obviously they can go to uh, the webpage and look up Wayne Bonnie and they'll have Clip Doctor and, and young officials can contact me either by email or, or, or phone. And I talk to them and, and I ask them what they, what they want to do, what their goals are. And, uh, and I'm out there to help any young official that wants to get better. I mean, I, I charge them a little bit, but it's, uh, it's more, you know, a young official coming up, how good I am. And because a lot of the young officials don't get, don't get supervised. I mean, because it's so hard to get supervised. There's not enough supervisors going around in all different minor leagues. So it's like I said, you'd send me a, a clip of a game. I do it, critique you. And when I critique a person, I'm pretty honest with them. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I tell them the truth, the way they are and, and where you should be, where you shouldn't be. And, and, and hopefully the officials get better from what I tell them. So it's, uh, that's how they can get hold of me by on the webpage, uh, go to Facebook, you know, look up clip docker or Wayne Bonnie. And I guess I'll show up that way. Now, uh, Wayne, I wanted to thank you for taking the time. I mean, certainly like we mentioned early on, you, you had a really remarkable career, not just in the NHL, but the WHA as well. I mean, five Stanley cup finals, as you mentioned, and just, you really had a remarkable career. So we certainly appreciate you taking the time to chat chat refereeing with us and giving us advice and uh, letting us know kind of the best path forward. So I, I appreciate your time and certainly uh, we'll have to get you back on the uh, podcast down the road uh, for some more uh, great stories that you have. Well, I thank you very much for contacting me and I wish you all the best. Uh, sounds like everything I've listened to a couple of your shows and they're, they're awesome and keep up the good work and, and good luck to all the young officials out there. 